Our scripture lesson today comes from the third chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. We continue in this lectionary selection. Verses 15 through 22, we uh, are in the midst of the story of Jesus that is prefaced by this wonderful story of John the Baptist. So hear the word of God. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O oh Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, for we pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Up near where we used to live in New Jersey, there is a reenactment that takes place every Christmas morning. One might think that there's really only one thing to reenact on a Christmas morning, the birth of Jesus. But there is another event reenacted in this specific part of the world, and it's one of the pivotal moments in American military history, the crossing of the Delaware River by General George Washington and his troops. In the evening of December the 25th, 1776, Washington had launched a daring surprise, upon, a surprise attack upon the Hessian troops in Trenton, New Jersey. But to do so, it meant crossing the perilous ice-filled waters of the Delaware River. Two of Washington's divisions had failed the crossing, but Washington proceeded. He assembled his troops on the Pennsylvania banks, boarded the boats, once in the boats, and across the river, there was now no going back. They were committed. It would work or it would not work. The attack, as we learn, however, in our history books, worked. It was successful, and Washington was able to commandeer both prisoners and supplies for what would be a long winter in Valley Forge. Some rivers and their crossing can change the course of human events. Forty or so years before the birth of Jesus, Julius Caesar, then governor of the Roman province north of Italy, had reached the end of his term and had been ordered by the Roman Senate to disband his army and return to Rome. Specifically, he was ordered not to bring his troops across the northern border into Italy, the Rubicon River. But on January 10th, 49 BC, Julius Caesar marched his troops across the Rubicon 
and initiated the great Roman Civil War and the start of the imperial era of Roman history. The die is cast, the soon-to-be emperor has been said to say, when he crossed the river, and so it was. Crossing the Rubicon is what we say today when we have reached the point of no return. Some rivers and their crossing change the course of human events. Some 75 years after Julius Caesar's crossing the Rubicon in a remote region of the Roman Empire, under the distant and indifferent gaze of Caesar's successor Tiberius, a young rabbi stepped into the gently flowing currents of the Jordan River and was administered the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke doesn't tell us who did the baptism, though we might presume it was John the Baptist as recorded in Matthew and Mark and as represented in our beautiful stained glass window there in the south transept, the one on the far right. Luke leaves out the identity of the baptizer in order maybe to draw our attention to the voice that most needs to be heard when Jesus enters the river. It's the voice of heaven. A voice came from heaven, Luke says, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has entered the Jordan River Jesus has entered the Jordan River, and in that river he hears the voice, and it is the voice of his Father. He has entered the river of belovedness. He has received the baptism of belovedness. He has heard the voice of heaven. He has heard the voice of belovedness. You are my Beloved, Jesus crosses through the river, river of belovedness and the die is cast. The Rubicon has been crossed. There is no turning back. There is no turning back from belovedness. Bible scholars and theologians have debated for hundreds of years over the question of when Jesus fully understand and embrace the essence and identity of Messiah. Was it at conception when the Holy Spirit came upon the young girl Mary? Was it at birth when the angels sang and the shepherds glorified and the wise men brought their gifts? Was it in Galilee when Mary and Joseph told stories of Annunciation and Nativity? Or was it in the moment when Jesus crossed the river, the moment when he received his baptism, the moment when he heard the voice? Maybe what makes Jesus Jesus is that he, and only he, not only hears the voice, the voice of belovedness, but accepts it, embraces it, internalizes it. In the river Jordan, Jesus becomes the beloved, and the die is cast. This is now who Jesus is. This is now where Jesus will go. This is now what Jesus will do. Some rivers and their crossing change the course of human events. Jesus is now beloved, and he will now live the life of the beloved. And the life of belovedness changes the course of history. It is what will take Jesus to his temptation. It was what will take Jesus to the sick. It's what will take Jesus to the outcast. It will take Jesus to the tax collectors. It will take Jesus to the chief priests. It will take Jesus to the stormy seas. It will take Jesus to the tomb of Lazarus. It will take Jesus to his own tomb. It will take Jesus to stroll through that Easter garden. You see, this is what belovedness will do. It changes the course, not just of human events, it changes the course of humans. 
to the degree we understand our beloved state, to the degree that we understand how much we are loved, is the degree to which we become the agents of love in the world. The course of human events gets changed when humans get changed with the belovedness of God. I remember reading years ago, way back when I was living in Philadelphia, of an event that took place at a J.C. Penney's in downtown Philadelphia. A woman whose name was Rose was shopping in the shoe department and noticed an erratically behaving man walk into the department pushing a baby stroller with an infant inside. Rose didn't much pay much attention to it, and a few minutes later, however, she returned and noticed the man, and the stroller had left, but the baby's blanket was on one of the chairs. Rose went to pick up the blanket so she could take it to the man who had left the store, but when she approached the blanket, the blanket moved, and of course, the baby was in the blanket. The man had abandoned the baby. Rose picked up the baby and held it tight and told the manager to call 911. And Rose said that she wasn't going to let that baby go until she knew that that baby was in safe arms. So she held that little fella until Officer Bobby Smith arrived. And Officer Bobby Smith welcomed that baby into his arms and said he would take care of that little one. And it didn't take more than just a ride to the precinct before Bobby Smith knew that there was a reason why a woman named Rose found that baby and an officer named Bobby was given the baby. He thought it was a God thing. The baby was meant to be his. The baby, as all babies, were meant to be loved. That's all that mattered. And Officer Bobby Smith and his wife started proceedings for adoption. Now that is as much of the story as I know, except to imagine that the river of belovedness ran through that J.C. Penney that day. A baby abandoned on one side and the beloved on the other. And the incredible chance that one human life, many human lives, were significantly altered by passing through the river. Maybe it's the same river that passed through a school in Baltimore, Maryland, St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, run by a group of Catholic brothers whose mission it was to love unlovable boys. It's Friday, June 13, 1902. A saloon keeper and his wife show up at St. Mary's. They are the parents of eight children. One of the children, George, is incorrigible. They don't know what to do with him. Finally, they make the painful decision to give him over to the Catholic Brothers of St. Mary's. Mom and Dad walk him to the school, hand him over to the God. It's the only thing they know to do. Brother Matthias was the one who was assigned to George, and it did not go well. George was uncontrollable. George would not conform. George was more trouble than he was worth. But Brother Matthias kept at it. He wasn't going to let George wiggle out of his love. So one day, Brother Matthias got the idea to give George a little batting practice, put George up against the wall of the school along with a bat, and started pitching him balls, one after the other. It took a while for George to figure out how to hit the ball, but when he finally hit the ball, it went a long way. Brother Matthias found his way into George's heart and found every possible moment to take George out to the yard and pitch him balls. They talked, they joked, they developed a bond. Year after year, he did this for 12 years, in fact, when finally a Major League Baseball team came knocking, and before George knew it, he was a Major League Baseball player. His first team, the Boston Red Sox, sold him to the Yankees, where George Herman Babe Ruth became the greatest home runner hitter of his age, belovedness will change you, it will change the world. 
in their groundbreaking book, A General Theory of Love, psychiatrist Thomas Lewis, Fari Amini, and Richard Lannan unpack what happens to the limbic system when the brain, within the brain, when children are surrounded or deprived of the intimate voice and the touch of other human beings. And that love in and of itself, they postulate, is the very thing that allows us to reach our fullest potential and our greatest security. And that without love, we become our own worst enemies. Martin Luther King called the church the beloved community, which of course is to say that the church is the community that has passed through the waters of baptism. The church is the community where the die has been cast. The church is the community that has heard the voice of heaven telling you and me that we are the beloved. We are the sons and daughters of God. We have been given a new identity. We have crossed the Rubicon and there is no turning back, which is to say that what makes us who we are is this life of belovedness. We exist to be in love and we exist to love. We exist to follow Jesus right out of that river and into the life of belovedness. We follow Jesus to the sick. We follow Jesus to the outcast. We follow Jesus to the grieving. We follow Jesus to the tombs. We follow Jesus to the hungry. We follow Jesus to our enemies. We follow Jesus to the cross. For we are as much as we are willing to embrace it. We are the beloved. We are the sons and daughters of God, and we have crossed the river into new life, a life whose mission it is to assure and ensure that all are loved through us. And it isn't easy. The Bible calls it agape love, and agape love is the love of the beloved. Agape love is a love that has first been loved by God. Agape love is a love that has been conditioned by Jesus. Love that transcends, transcends our compunction to hate, our love that transcends our compunction to hate our enemy, a love that loves the enemy and loves the unlovely. Anthony DeMello tells a story about the man who took great pride in his lawn. Nothing gave him greater joy than to have the best lawn in his neighborhood. He fertilized it, he limed it, he watered it, he cut it. He, it was nearly a perfect lawn, except that every spring it had dandelions. Every spring the dandelions would sprout and bare their yellow faces to him as he sat on his front porch. He tried everything to get rid of them. He sprayed weed killer. He dug them up. He called the local lawn chemical company. Nothing seemed to work. Finally, when he had exhausted everything he knew to do, he wrote to the Department of Agriculture. He explained all the things he tried to do to get rid of these blasted things and begged for them to tell him what to do with these blasted dandelions. A few days later, a letter arrived in the mail. Mr. Smith, thank you for your letter outlining the problems you're having with your dandelions. We understand all the things that you've done to try to get rid of them. We have only one more thing to suggest, Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith, the letter said, we suggest you learn to love them. <laughs> what could it be? What would it be? What would it look like if the church became the body of people that learned to love dandelions, that learned to love, that sought to grow more in love with God's love for us, to grow more in love with God's love for all people. For we love out of our own sense of having been loved. For it is the river that changes the course of human events. 
the waters of belovedness. Back in the midst of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, there was a little town in Mississippi that had a boycott of the merchants downtown. The boycott was organized by leaders in the black church. It was a peaceful and constructive demonstration, but the police were not on their side and were rough with these black church folk. At the very apex of the struggle, as fate would have it, the chief of police suffered a heart attack and was in the hospital for several weeks. Even though he was confined to a private room, he continued to supervise the police effort, calling deputies into his room every day for reports. One day, one of the men said, you know, the troublemakers are planning a rally down at the AME church tonight. They say it's going to be a prayer meeting. Prayer meeting, my eye, the chief snorted. Listen, it's going to be a warm night, so you go down to that church, and the windows will be open, and I want you to go stand underneath the windows and hear what they're planning, and then come tell me tomorrow. The next day, the deputy returned. Well, the chief said, did you do as I asked? Yes, I did. The deputy answered, well, what happened? Well, well, they sang some hymns. I know that. They sing, always sing hymns. Then what happened? Well, they prayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what did they pray for? They prayed for you, sir. They prayed for you. The beloved community. The strange and lovely things that happen on the other side of the river.